Hello. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. This week, I'll be sharing a few picks from my Audible book club, aka encouraging you to listen to the same books I'm listening to because I need to be in control. First, you gotta sign up for the free 30-day trial, though, at audible.com slash lena. That's audible.com slash lena. Getting older has never scared me. Maybe it's because I've always favored 5 p.m. dinner parties over Bushwick ragers. Maybe it's because I have the constitution of a very old British woman with croup and the motor skills of a six-month-old. Or maybe it's because the ladies on both sides of my family have lived to salty, advanced age and made it look like a freaking blast. My great-aunt Sylvia ate a cup of chocolate ice cream given to her by her gal, Jewish-American princess code for maid, curled in her Upper East Side bed and drifted off at age 103. My great-grandma Mimi died at 96, and her daughter Dorothy followed in her footsteps, piecing out at the same age this past summer, surrounded by daughters and granddaughters, preening and picking at each other just as she would have wanted. On the other gruff wasp side, my great-aunt Dode was able to vote for Obama at the age of 100 and opted out four months later, just a hair shy of her 101st birthday. In addition to living long enough to really torture their offspring, another tradition in our family has been women documenting their coming of age with precision and, often unintended, comedy. So much of my personal aesthetic and mission has been shaped by the women in my family's belief that their stories, the mundane, the humiliating, the heartbreaking, are worthy of preservation. Today's episode of Women of the Hour, we're exploring aging. This episode, this whole dang season, brought to you by our friends at MailChimp. Over 14 million people use MailChimp. Why not join the fun? Now let's get back to the OG MailChimp, aka the delightfully demented journals of my blood relations. Reading my great-aunt Dode's memoir, creatively titled Things Remembered, as a ten-year-old gave me an ache and an itch to make sure not one detail of my time on this earth was lost. Dode remembered, with more cheer than any millennial could muster, a week in the life of a woman living in a small working-class Connecticut town before the advent of television. Monday was wash day, and it wasn't easy. Most Tuesdays were spent ironing. An important activity on Wednesdays was the Ladies' Benevolent Society. It was very active in those days, one of the few things a lady could do to get out of the house and see some people. I'm not sure what they did except eat and talk, but many of the ladies in town went and enjoyed it. Saturday was baking day. If what was baked didn't last a week, you went without. Except for preparing food, Sunday was a day of rest. Forty years later, my mother kept journals throughout the 1970s, from the time she graduated art school until she met my father. These journals are, in truth, my prime creative influence, much as I'd like to cite Agnes Varda or My Bloody Valentine, and reading them pushed me to write my first film. The books, simple brown diaries filled to the brim with financial and food records, complaints and dreams, what we now understand to be benchmarks of clinical depression, were a touchstone for the kinds of stories I wanted to be sure girls told. Honest, messy, and self-indulgent, qualities women have so often had to limit to their own diaries. October 3rd, 1975. Starting on my birthday, moved back to NYC on October 1st. I realized the tone of my journals has changed, but that's how I want it. At first, I was upset by the way I neglect my writing. No more pouring my heart out, recording every mood change in detail. I'd rather work and have been working all day in the dark room. In June, I didn't know the first thing about photography. Now dark room is set up and I'm making fairly good prints. Saw Reverend Woodbury yesterday, or Loonsbury, as Stephen calls her. She said once a year on your birthday, you can wish for seven things. Check them on the third of every month. She said it's in the Bible. It's worth a try. The list. One. To keep working heavily on my art, being constantly creative, putting out lots of creative energy. Two. Find a way to make money without full-time or any non-art job through my creativity. Maybe with HUD? Lots of money to buy things I want. 3. Learn about photog. Black, white, color, eventually filmed to video. 4. Satisfying growing love relationship with man, whoever it's supposed to be. 5. Happiness and good health for Bonnie, Susan, Sam, and Dot. 
Six, to grow spiritually, be a good person, not experience depression or paranoia or intolerance, to appreciate my life, not to worry so much. Seven, good health, beauty for myself, really was an okay birthday. Tuesday, December 31st, New Year's Eve. Want to know how bummed out I am? Went to Brooklyn Museum. It was closed. Lance wasn't home. Bombed around in the cold and snow. Kept trying to call him. Finally reached him from the subway when I was about to go home. Walked through the snow to his house, soaking wet. Pissed as hell at him. Don't know why. Wore sandals and socks and beige pants that just got cleaned. I didn't know it was going to snow, so I unbummed out when I got there. Lance was having a drink with his downstairs neighbor. I felt very much like the lover. The other woman. Now I feel a little weird because Lance is making phone calls. Think he's talking to a dancer he's hot for. That Lance. Don't know what I think of him lately. But with the way I am, well, I'm totally fickle. Totally capricious. Who knows? Bonnie and Terry have been complaining about their constricting monogamous situations. I guess I'm lucky. Lance dotes on me, fixes dinner, loves me, likes to make love a lot. So what do I want? Do I really want him? Man, he's pissing me off right now. This really is the beginning of a new regime, as I mentioned. Things are different. I am toughening. Business things will gel and emotional things also. The important things will be important. Inspired by my mother, I kept my own diary with gusto for a full year. Privacy has never particularly interested me, so this has to be some kind of record for an exhibitionist. Unlike Dode's winsome recounting of rural life, or my mother's depression entries, mine was obsessively and totally devoted to, you guessed it, sex. July 2009. Sam and I peeled off from the group, made out against a fence. He stood on my foot. I told him, I'm not usually like this, but I have the overwhelming urge to bite you. He said, what do you think that's about? I said, you're standing on my foot, but I'm sort of into it. He said, pervert. I said, I want you to bike me home and fuck me. He asked why I was wearing bike shorts. I said, protection. And also I had no more clean underwear. We walked into a weird alleyway. He said, this is just too abduction-y to resist. We went inside, made out. His pants came off. I started to suck his dick. He sighed. I told him to boss me around a bit, so he shoved my head down. I felt like I'd choke. Then he grabbed me, kissed me, turned me around, and pulled my shorts down. For a second, I thought he'd just walk out and leave me there with my ass in the air. Then I turned around and saw him pulling his shorts down. Afterwards, we talked for a few minutes. He walked me to a cab, kissed me goodbye, twice. I said, I hope the fact that I fucked you outside doesn't mean you don't want to take pills and watch Barry Lyndon on Wednesday. And he said, no, I think it has the opposite effect. He didn't call. Christmas 2009. I've been slaughtered by a real doozy of a UTI. Well, I don't know how bad it is on the UTI scale, but my pee hole slash bladder are not in good shape. My mom found some expired antibiotics and fed them to me, but I am just perched on the toilet all afternoon, letting drips and drabs of knife urine emerge and chugging unsweetened crayon while my immediate family and Grandma Dottie watch It's Complicated at the Millerton Movie Theater. Do you believe in punishment for misdoings? Things I've done recently that I may be punished for in this way. One, I lied and told Grace I was at Canal and Hudson almost home when I was really at 7th Avenue and Varick Street. Two, I allowed Isabel's house to be degraded by Tisch graduates. Three, Grace and I were talking about privacy and passwords and whose passwords we knew. This inspired me to see if my ex Joe Ramirez's email password was still party exclamation point. It was. I logged out quickly, but not out of a sense of guilt, rather because his inbox was so insufferably boring and contained only Amazon.com order confirmations. Four, I allowed slash demanded Sam to put his entire hand up my vagina whilst I already had a vaginal health problem. On the same evening, I seriously considered stealing the $100 bill he uses to snort drugs. I didn't do it, but not because I care about him, just because I felt there was a good chance I'd be caught. The journals, Dodes, my mother's, mine, are all doing more than recording a moment in time. They are asking, no begging, to move beyond it. They are demanding control, and control comes with adulthood. The bloom of youth doesn't make up for the humiliations of being half a person. In our own ways, across space and time and social mores, we ask for something more and for the wisdom to grab hold of it when it arrives. Our bodies just need to catch up with our dreams. On April 6, 1976, my mother says, Decided today that in some way my staying home is good and maybe a job isn't necessary yet. Thinking maybe in all these days alone, something will pull together. All the loose ends will tie into one thing that means something. 
I believe it was our poet laureate Cher who once asked, do you believe in life after love? Finding love again after losing your partner late in life is so intimidating that many people just give up and turn to bingo. I mean, it must be terrifying. Where do you go to meet single hot seniors, especially if you haven't dated since back when a beer and a wink was all it took? But it turns out that thanks to the wonders of online dating, braver souls can swipe right well into their senior years, just like Sydney and Barbara. When I was young, I used to go out, you know, you'd start at nine o'clock and and uh, have breakfast at three in the morning and then go home and go to bed. Well, now we go out at one o'clock in the afternoon, go to a movie, have a dinner, go home, Sydney smokes a cigar, I read a book and then we have a snack and go to sleep about 11. So dating, I think, for older adults is you do it a lot in the, in the afternoon <laughs> instead of at night. I'm Barbara Agee and uh, I am here with my partner. My name is Sidney Finkel and I'm here with Barbara who is my significant other and all but legal marriage, we are men and women. We hope to share the remaining of our lives together. I'm uh, 76. And I'm 83. I wanted to go ahead and open myself up to the possibility of a partner for the last part of my life. And uh, I'd only been married once in life and for a very short time. and then had pretty much been single. My wife Jean died, and I was, of course, in terrible mourning. And I was determined that, that I would wanted to find another partner. I was encouraged to go on a dating service called Our Time. Went to the service Our Time. Actually, I went to all three services. I went to Match.com and and the Jewish service. I mean, it certainly is easier. I don't know how older people would get together. I mean, you don't go to bars. You maybe go to church, but that's predominantly women. I mean, it just gives you a great opportunity to interact with a number of different people. And I was looking for someone who was loving and attentive and I want him to be a bit adventurous and athletic and like to climb hills. I didn't want anybody with a lot of money. I knew that. I just don't, didn't want to live that type of a style. I, I wanted somebody who was fairly healthy. Because I'm a retired nurse and I took care of a lot of people, my specialties were in gerontology, the study of aging, and in physical assessment. I didn't necessarily want to get into a caregiver role. I had seen uh, Sydney's uh, little profile on our time, and I thought, oh, that sounds like a pretty interesting man. And the woman that I was going out with that time was an artist, and she was busy that weekend with some convention or something, so I figured I would give uh, Barbara her an email. I was getting tired of doing all this, uh, emailing back and forth and back and forth, and I thought... I want to meet this man. I'm tired of doing all this in-between stuff. I want to look at him and see if I, there's any zing in there. And So we met at uh, Chichula. Tonashua Park. We had a long lunch, and then we walked around the ground. And it just happens that we have lots of things in common. You know, we, we both are NPR people. You know, we like the arts. We like reading books. And we like to have a snack before we go to bed. And uh, I felt a great energy towards her. And I just got up the courage to kiss her and put my arms around her, told her, let's go home and go to bed. Let's make love. I was rather shocked. <laughs> I think my return comment was, not right away. <laughs> Not today, maybe. Although, uh, 
That changed a little bit, didn't it, Sydney? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I ended up down in the bedroom. I remember going back. I says, well, we can cuddle a little bit. And we did a little bit more in cuddling. <laughs> For the first six weeks, we never we wake up at 7 o'clock. We wouldn't get out of bed till 10. If I had a book, I, I would show that there's lots of fire still. And it can be just like you're 20. You know, it's difficult at my age to get an erection, and and I I, I figured that I will. Uh, it's embarrassing for me. I will, you know, use other techniques to make a woman uh, satisfied. He'd already gone ahead and discovered and done and made a plan and then he listed out the three things that he had planned and I just I just thought that was wonderful yeah just wonderful I'm very happy I I am truly very happy and lucky and blessed that I have Barbara in my life I mean we've been together now for long enough to know that all our Faults and things would come out. We just handle it beautifully. Our producer Barry is happy to report that her grandfather, Sydney, and his girlfriend, Barbara, recently celebrated their two-year anniversary. They look forward to hiking many more hills together and eating many more snacks before bed, which is, frankly, more than my boyfriend can get me to do, and I'm not yet 31. Kudos, kids. Kudos. As Girls Ends, I'm thinking long and hard about job changes. We've all got our fantasy careers. Dolphin trainer at a SeaWorld-style park where the animals have volunteered to be there. Baby food critic. Ariana Grande's ponytail minder. For Taffy Jaffe, being a stand-up comedian was at the top of her list. She had already enjoyed a long career as a psychotherapist, but switched gears and became a comedian after her second divorce. And thank God therapy and divorce were two of the hottest comedy topics anyway, so she had a head start. In August 2016, she competed in the Ladies of Laughter contest and was chosen runner-up in the newcomer category. I'm so glad to be here. This is great. I had such a crazy day. It started out this morning. I went to the gynecologist. Nothing was wrong. I just felt the need to open up to someone. (laughs) The first time I went on the stage, the MC introduced me. I'm giving Taffy extra time because she doesn't have that much time left. And I got up and I said, thank you so very much. Luckily, I have enough time left to tell you to go fuck yourself. <laughs> you're, you're on your toes. It's a party. You, you throw the volleyball around. It's fast. I, I, I like all that. I, I get dressed up. A lot, of, a lot of people come on stage, they're kind of schlumpy and dumpy, the torn jeans, and I, I wear glitter, and I'm all jazzed up. <laughs> like, where am I going? I have these big cherry earrings and like that. And then my darling boyfriend, Vinny. I've been with this guy for 30 years, not married, but we haven't spoken for the last 10. This guy is a man of a few words, like about 20 a day. (laughs) And sometimes he doesn't even meet his minimum daily requirement. (laughs) I say to him, Vinny, why don't you talk to me? And he says, I know you hate being interrupted. (laughs) Several of my friends in my age range always are, what do I do now? tired, I have a pension, I was a teacher, I was a social worker, and it's, it's difficult. You have to reinvent each day just to be in the world with other people. And, and this is sort of a built-in community. When I walk into places now, lots of people know me. So I like that. I made the city my little backyard. Very often, women my age, they are the grandparent. That's their job now, and they put their efforts and their time into that. And I, I, I'm still a teenager, so I like to be with my grandson, and we're both, like, bad together, say dirty words and laugh. I, I, I just like to have fun. So, you know, where it goes, where it doesn't go, you know. And, and if all else fails, I'll be in some um, old-age home passing around jokes, you know, make fun of everybody. <laughs> 
Daffy Jaffe, if you're looking for another kid to be bad with, I am very much available. Special thanks to Rama Reddy Raghavan for producing that heartwarming piece. This season, we've had the incredible fortune of Tessa Thompson every darn week. And for our final installment, she is joined by a gang of geniuses, all helping to answer this week's listener question, which is, I'm 17, and I have smile wrinkles. I try to stop smiling and laughing as much as I can, but I can't help it. Is it too bad a thing to have wrinkles slash lines? No, wrinkles slash lines are the best. And uh, by the way, everybody has them. The other day, I was sitting across from this guy who's like just a perfect specimen, but also, by the way, has lines. So don't get it twisted. He's human. And he said to me, oh, my God, you don't have those two lines on your neck. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, girls, every girl of every age has two fine lines across her neck and you don't have them. And I kid you not, I was like, what? I want those lines. (laughs) immediately and I've since looked around and it's true like we have those and they're great and it's bumming me out that for whatever reason like I'm this weird like giraffe neck I don't have those lines so no and and I have uh those smile lines like which people called crow's feet which I like we just need to change the name maybe to something that just sounds more glamorous like smile lines um and they're the measure of living a really great life but also by the way like five-year-olds have them um because that's what we're supposed to do as humans so love them dearest tessa thank you so much for imparting your wisdom all season long here's chelsea peretti um you're not quote young you're just straight up young 17 is, I mean, it's all a continuum. You're not young compared to, like, a newborn. Okay, now, you've stopped smiling and you're seriously asking if that's a good idea. (sighs) Smile lines, you know, they're stressful. Everything's stressful, though. And your, your only options are stop smiling, which is a crazy option that you have to abort. Don't want to bring up a tough topic, guys. (laughs) Your other option is you should go on Google and image search cool, badass women that haven't had anything done to their face. Greta Lee? Recently, my mother has pointed out that I've got smile wrinkles on my nose and around my eyes. Skincare is a really big deal in Korea, so she has taken it upon herself to suggest that maybe I might want to consider changing my laugh to something like this. Ho, ho, ho. Yeah, I don't recommend this advice at all because the only thing that's worse than having all the smile wrinkles in the world is not having any friends because you laugh like Santa Claus. An unenthusiastic Santa Claus at that. Gabrielle Sidibay. What more evidence could there be other than like a joyous and young spirit that you enjoy life and that you have a good time and that you enjoy the people you're around and the things you're doing other than laugh lines? Um, wrinkles are not a bad thing. And I'm, look, I know that I'm black and dark skinned, so I've got a lot of melanin going on and I'll probably never have wrinkles. But, but I still think that it's not, it's not a, it's, it's not a big deal. If you can wear your happiness on your face, then that is just magical. Enjoy them, girl. Tavi Gevinson. Smiling and laughing are things that you do when you're experiencing happiness. And happiness is a far more elusive emotion than youthful beauty. People can buy youthful beauty. People can pay for surgeries and injections and do all types of things. But I do know that there's good, good proof that trying to sustain youthful beauty is a losing battle. Alana Glazer. Laughing is like the hottest, smartest, best thing you can do. It's like a part of you is like having an orgasm or something. It's like you're like brain, heart, your spirit orgasm is like laughing. It's it's the best. And smiling is like the way a face looks most beautiful. 
drink a lot of water, moisturize, use sunscreen, don't not laugh and not smile. Jamie Lee Curtis. I've always loved lines. I wanted lines. I wanted, I wanted a patina that experience and maturity and hours on the planet gave you. And I didn't feel I had them. I didn't like being new and young. I didn't want to be an ingenue. I wanted to be a character actress way more than I ever wanted to be known for my beauty, which was always sort of odd anyway. Cara Delevingne. It's about the experiences you have, the people you meet, the things you choose to do, the actions you take, the lessons you learn, and the stories that you'll eventually pass on. Lines and wrinkles are part of that story. Holland Taylor. To a young woman worried about smiling, making wrinkles. The most beautiful woman I ever met, she was about 70, was Governor Ann Richards from Texas. Everyone agreed she was incredibly beautiful. She was also very wrinkled when she was 70 years old. And every wrinkle was full of character and joy of the life that she lived. Because she smiled until her face almost broke off. And I really suggest you do the same. Feel your life, feel the joy, let everyone see it, and let your character be on your face, full of glory. You'll hear more from their brilliant minds later in the episode. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Despite my best intentions, I've never actually joined an IRL book club, which is why I'm obsessed with starting an Audible book club so we can listen on public transportation and then tweet at each other using the hashtag Women of the Hour. This week, I am encouraging you to listen to Shirley Jackson, A Rather Haunted Life the harrowing and cinematic biography of genre-bending mid-century author Shirley Jackson and her stranger-than-fiction world. If you want to get caught up on her legend, you can also listen to The Lottery and other stories. A 30-day free trial will give you plenty of time to go deep on Shirley, queen of psychological horror and obsessive dieter. So head to audible.com slash Lena. That's audible.com slash Lena. Mary Carr is a poet, memoirist, insult factory, and personal hero of mine. I wish she was always there when I needed a brilliant, brilliant jab delivered fast. I sat down with Mary at her kitchen table to discuss her upcoming novel, which is all about, you guessed it, an aging woman. The novel I'm working on is about what it's like to be a woman getting older. Wow. And so... Uh, a topic that is still woefully undiscussed. Uh, well, I can tell you why. Because... You know, if we hadn't given birth to children, there'd be a bounty on women my age. They would be so. eating us <laughs> with apples in our mouths. So we would be a source of meat for this country, starving country. Let me tell you, they, oh my God. they, they hate us. I just imagined you with an apple in your mouth. No, women getting older are so... We're crones. We're hags. We're witches. And in a way, they're not wrong, though. Here's the thing. If you think of women as being like this, a sort of civilizing force in a way, which let's face it, you know, men would be out, you know, boffing watermelons or whatever, you know, yeah. if, we, if we didn't tell them to quit, you know, hitting each other with clubs or whatever. I think one develops as she ages, or I, I certainly have a kind of a praising gaze. Yeah. And it's scary. It's scary. I think it's scary for men. You know, I, a friend of mine is, is, is my agent is famous for dating like 20 year olds and he was complaining about his girlfriend he was saying well she's she's not very smart and she actually doesn't like sex very much so she's not so fun to sleep with and I said I, I don't understand she's not smart she's not fun to sleep with what why are you dating with her what, what is yeah. it what does she bring to the party and he said she's really sweet and I said when she gets her period, she'll be like all the rest of us. <laughs> she's, she's coming. She, I said, she's sweet now. Yeah. Five years from now, everything that she's been <laughs> thinking and not saying like, is going to rush to the front of her face. Yeah. She and she will not. not be able to stop herself. The things I would tolerate coming out of male mouths specifically, but human mouths generally, oh, when yeah. I was 18, 19, 20, even till I was 28. 
Right. I was just kind of like ready to let anyone say anything to me. And then all this rage flooded to the I surface. Know, I know. And so your novel deals with some of this. Yes. Yeah. It's partly about this. It's about, it's about a woman, a single woman in New York, uh, uh, dating. Do you think there's anything about being single that makes being a writer easier? A female writer? It depends on how you negotiate your relationship. I think most women tend to develop, especially young women, social obligations and so forth with their children and their families. That they, you know, that male, I mean, I remember Tobias Wolf going on, you know, book tour and then coming home and his kids have all been in school and, you it's know, all handled. it's all handled. Everything's handled. You know, the, everything's fine. Every, the bills are paid. The kids are washed. Everybody's in bed. You know, yeah. So, um, yeah. I mean, in terms of hours, yeah, in terms of hours. And also obligations. You know, I used to do stuff that I just wouldn't do now. As a young woman, I, you know, bought people's aunts' birthday presents. <laughs> I mean, just I like I spent a lot of time just thinking about ingratiating myself to people who didn't give a shit if I lived or died and didn't matter that yeah. I didn't have to ingratiate myself to. But I sort of felt like I was, I don't know, I had this list of things I thought a woman was supposed to do that I did. So I think, um, Yes, certainly. I think I operate better in a relationship. Even if you're skilled at not being in one? Yes, yes. Also, being a, being a one, it's very different being a 40-year-old or even a 50-year-old woman who's single and being a 60-year-old woman. You're a, you're a social pariah in some way. The culture constantly reminds men of their sexuality and their masculinity and their power. A 70-year-old man or an 80-year-old, they're like, oh, you know, keep your hands off her or, you know. So many jokes. About so it, many yeah. jokes that reinforce and shore up their agency and their masculinity and their sexuality yeah. long past when they're, you know, sexual. Yeah, they're out boning people. So um, there's, I mean, any mention of any kind of sexuality for somebody my age is just really people are just... It's horrifying for people. Just yeah. people just don't want to think about it. Obviously, a lot of us are still getting laid. Yeah. As it turns out. You look pretty fresh today. <laughs> do I have a little bloom in my cheeks? <laughs> a little bloom in my cheeks. This is so amazing, Mary. I can't believe how many completely remarkable things you've said over the course of this. I don't know. You can read more from my interview with Mary Carr on LennyLetter.com. The next story is from producer Maya Croth, who takes us to the Mexico-United States border to meet Rosa Vences. Rosa didn't speak very much English, so you'll hear her and a translating narrator. As of 2010, Rosa was 100 years old and still selling peanuts seven days a week. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. That's all the English I know. I know when they ask me, how much? And I say, peanuts, and two dollars, and thank you. And that's it. The peanuts are seven pesos. The pistachos cost 20. Nobody earns much money here, maybe 100 pesos, 150 in a day. But it's not from the peanuts, it's from what people give me. You can't make a living. I feel like the richest woman in the world because I have no pain. Because everybody else is dying and I can't seem to die. I turned 100 last August 30th. I was born in San Felipe de Jesus in Mexico State. My husband died 40 years ago and my four sons are gone too. These guys around here don't even know my name. They just call me Abuelita. Since I was born, I've never been to the doctor. I've never had a vaccine, a pill, a medicine, nothing. There's no disease. It's all mental. The secret is I don't eat meat. No coffee, no milk, no bread. I eat beans, lentils, fish, shrimp, greens, nopales, peas, garbanzos, all kinds of vegetables. Everything except meat. Well, I'll eat that too if someone gives it to me. I'm like Adam from the Bible. I eat whatever you give me. 
I haven't had a drop of water in 68 years. No kidding, just Coca-Cola. I have seven of these a day. If I drink water, I feel bad. I've been smoking these things for 95 years. They tell me I was depraved since I was five years old. But here I am, not dead, because it's all mental. I'm not afraid of death because we're all going the same way, rich or poor, tall or short, light skin or dark skin. I talked to my father up there. He's my doctor, my lawyer, my best friend. He takes care of me, gives me life, shelter, clothes, food, happiness, love, tenderness for everyone. What more do I need? Money? Money's worthless. Health is what matters. I tell him, here I am. I submit to you, body, heart, and soul, with everything that I am. Whenever you want to take me, I'm ready. Rosa passed away a few years ago, but people at the border still tell affectionate stories about Abuelita and her Coca-Colas. Let's check in with our battalion of wisdom-dispensing, accomplished women. This time, they're enlightening us with their thoughts on ageism. It goes both ways. Here once more are Jamie Lee Curtis, Chelsea Peretti, Tavi Gevinson, Cara Delevingne, Holland Taylor, Greta Lee, with a thrilling splash of Khloe Kardashian, too. Ageism. Hmm. I'm not sure I was really affected by it. I embraced my body and my aging early on, and I've run with it. I've honestly run with it and have never looked back. I once had a girlfriend tell me I should dye my hair, and I just laughed at her. So I don't think I've really experienced it. Maybe I will soon. Fuck. You know what's funny that I've experienced about ageism? It's very simple, but it's funny to me. There's been a couple parts that I've auditioned for um, in movies where the feedback that I've gotten is that they're going to go with someone older. And I'm like, really? How old are we? Like an 80-year-old? Like, how, how much older do you get than me in movies? <laughs> but anyway, I feel like it's like, the nice way to let someone down because then as a woman you're supposed to be like oh so so I'm young okay that's great that I didn't get this job I feel the best I have ever felt in my life mind body and soul I feel so incredibly strong mentally and I do believe that comes with age so I'm proud of my age when I think before I was maybe a little more insecure of my age only because of society which sucks but I have learned to live for me and to really not focus on a number and focus on how I feel and what I feel is right to do and really just become confident within myself people have made a big deal about my age for as long as I've been somewhat in the public eye and so of course I worry about what'll happen when I'm older and I don't really have that as something that defines me anymore youth and that's kind of why I had to stop trying to like hoard my own youth and instead work on things like happiness that will be there for me when youth falls away. Ageism is real. Ageism and Hollywood go hand in hand, uh, especially for women. It's something that you will experience. Um, you'll hear something like, oh, we were looking to go with someone who reads just a little bit younger is code for you're old. <laughs> um, but you can also experience it in reverse, um, meaning I have definitely arrived on set and, you know, it's early. I've just rolled out of bed. I'm in my pajamas. I'm not wearing any makeup and I'm meeting a co-star or somebody um, for the first time. And um, I've been mistaken for a teenager. The last time I was doing fashion shows, so, 
you know, once you pass 20, there are only a handful of girls that are still doing shows. So the majority of girls are aging from 13 to 19. So in the last few years, I was so shocked at actually feeling like I was at the older end of the spectrum when I was 20. It was so, so strange. You know, there'd be like the younger models and they'd be saying words when I was like, what does that mean? And I suddenly became that person who wasn't like down with the kids. I think I've experienced a certain amount of ageism. I mean, our society is rather ageist, hopefully becoming less so. Um, for the most part, I really do think most enlightened people, the people you'd want to know in your life, think age is just a number. And in recent, the past couple of years, I've uh, entered into a love relationship with someone who's about 32 years younger than I am, which astonishes me and a lot of my friends, but hey, go with the flow. All is good. I cherish you all in your furtive voice memos dearly. So obviously ageism sucks. It's another form of prejudice and it's not cool. It's also pretty easy to spot, especially here in Hollywood where you can graduate from playing Ben Affleck's love slave to his mother by the time the lease on your Tesla has expired, you lucky 14 year old you. But what are some real steps to combating ageism? Anti-ageism activist Ashton Applewhite, holy shit that's a lot of A's, is here to help us avoid getting our granny panties in a twist. I'm Ashton Applewhite. I'm an anti-ageism activist, the author of uh, This Chair Rocks, a manifesto against ageism. Uh, if you told me 10 years ago that I would be possessed by aging, I would have thought, why would I want to think about something so gloomy? You know, aging, aging is how we move through life. It's how we as individuals um, intersect with each other and culture and society, and it's perfect for the generalist like me. When people of all ages show up for something, whether it is against hate speech, whether it is to defend a clinic or pick at a bank or you name it, those efforts are more effective if people of all ages are there. If you're sitting around a table and everyone is 28 or everyone is 68, you are not going to be as effective. I mean, and there's tons of research to validate this, especially if it's a creative endeavor. You are going to be less effective. So. It's really important that each of us looks at our own internalized ageism, those little voices that whisper, I'm too old, or she's too old, or I'm too young even. And because that narrative is what makes us step away instead of stepping up, and that's how older people marginalize themselves, really. And if we want to be effective, and God knows we are going to need to be, it is really important for all ages to come forward in whatever struggle matters the most to them. And in that way, of course we end ageism in an integral, organic way, because it is, of course, by integrating anything, race, gender, you name it. It is when people who are different from each other come together in any struggle that prejudices fall by the wayside. Aging is an accomplishment. We should feel pride instead of shame. But we need to get together and compare notes to see the ways in which these problems are shared, that they are socially formed, so that we can mobilize effectively against them. The way it is now, younger women maintain power by distancing themselves from older women. And older women try desperately to hold on to power by those strategies. And it's not until we slip that noose, right? I mean, ageism takes root in denial, in pretending that we will never get old, that somehow we can avoid it, even though in our lizard brains or closer to the surface, we know, we know it's happening. Everyone wakes up a day older. So how can we compare notes and have younger and older women sit down and look at each other? I mean, literally start out by just looking silently at each other, not only to see each other, but to think about what that means and where those messages come from and how we can think differently about reimagining what it means to age while female so that we can take strength from each other and stop 
competing to dig a hole that reinforces ageist and sexist and patriarchal norms. Because as it is, we are complicit in digging that hole and complicit in our own marginalization. And that's got to stop. That was Ashton Applewhite. You can follow her at This Chair Rocks on Twitter to learn more about anti-ageism activism. I've been in the public eye since I was 23, and guys, I'm not going to lie, it can really grind your ass slash soul down. I have periods of extreme burnout at age 30, so I can't even imagine going through it before your wisdom teeth have even come in. But Daisy Egan knows, so I sat down to talk to her about being a child star and how that translates into grown womanhood. We at Women of the Hour have a guest we are all very excited about. Uh, Our producer, Jenna Weiss-Berman, had such a childhood fascination with her that she's been sort of shaking all day. We are here with actor, writer, mother, all-around remarkable human, Daisy Egan. Hi, Lena. (laughs) Hi, Daisy. Hi, Jenna. (laughs) (laughs) Daisy Egan uh, was the youngest woman ever to win the Tony for the role of Mary Lennox in The Secret Garden. And what year was that, Daisy? 1991. Girl. Yep. There was a lot popping off in 91. I know. Game Boy was very new. (laughs) (laughs) I had bought one with my own money. I was very proud. You are the darling of Broadway, and you win a Tony. Like, what is going through the mind of an 11-year-old who wins a Tony? God, you know, I think it's funny. It's like I didn't know that it was that abnormal, but I knew. My mom had kept saying, you're not going to win because they don't give awards to kids. I think she was, like, preparing me for the inevitable (laughs) failure of life. You know, I think, like, in retrospect, I think there's things about it that are obviously really, like, tremendous. Career-wise, it's it can't match it, right? But, like, I think developmentally, it did did a lot of... um, I don't want to say damage, but like it certainly helped really shape who I who I was at the time and who I became. Because at that point in your childhood, that's literally when you're learning that like you are not the center of the universe and that people have other experiences and feelings and yeah, perspectives. That... But then I sort of was the center of the, at least like the New York universe and my my industry. And you had a ton of adults who were relying on you and treating you like the goose that laid the golden egg, who I'm sure like were like loved you, but were also like, you got to get out there even if you're not feeling great yeah, tonight, Daisy. absolutely. I remember my father and I were having a fight at one point back then, and his argument to me was, you have a multi-million dollar show like riding on your shoulders, pull it together. And I, I at the time I was like, Right. That should be my argument. Like, I'm under a lot of stress. Yeah. You're like, you (laughs) shouldn't be screaming at me. Right. Did you feel like you had any adults in your life who were ever saying to you, like, maybe it's better for you to just be a kid right now? No, no. I didn't. mm -mm. Nope. (laughs) What was the moment when you stopped working? And what, or was there a moment when you stopped working? And what happened to you psychologically at that moment? The moment where I stopped working voluntarily was in 2007. And I had been toying with the idea for so long that I had friends who were like, oh, my God, just do it or or don't by now. But stop talking. It was like years that I was toying with the idea. And I remember I was I was living in L.A. at the time and I was on my way to therapy and I'd been I'd been really great. I was so unhappy. You know, I was in L.A. and I and I and I was feeling like I had a very high powered manager when I got to L.A. who said some really awful things to me as they are wont to do. Yep. And it was a very difficult decision for me because I knew what I would do if I wasn't an actor, but I didn't, but it was all I knew. And I was driving to therapy and it, it, it felt like the clouds parted. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, I'm done. Like it just, it just like dropped in my lap. I was like, I'm finished and I feel fine. And I would run into friends after I made that decision. They were like, you look great. What happened? And I was like, I quit acting. <laughs> it's awesome. I really recommend it. And what is it like like when you're called a prodigy, when people announce over and over, you're the youngest person who's ever done this. Yeah. Like, Once you start to no longer be sort of like of a prodigious age, what does that feel like? In some ways, it's a relief. Like I get like and especially 
I'd like to think that I'm talented, and I'm, I'm, thank you, a good actor. I can tell you that I've worked with Daisy, and I won't (laughs) tell you exactly how, and she's the good actor. Thank you. I mean, like everybody, I feel like, you know, at the the beginning of the day, I'm like, Jesus, I hope nobody finds out, you know, that I have no idea what I'm doing. But I feel like now I get to prove myself just on my own merits, which Mm -hmm. obviously is what I had been doing before, but... But it was it's, hard for you to perceive it that way. Right. I feel at this point I am going to reveal in the interview that Daisy is in the sixth and final season <gasps> of Girls. I just don't want to tell you what part she plays because it's very special and has bonded us for life. I'm, I mean, it's it's weird. And when you came in, I was just like, that's an amazing actor. And the Thank fact you. that you had won a Tony at age 11 did not factor into the decision to cast you. Thank you. That was a... That was something I learned that was almost just like a pop-up video fact about you, (laughs) not a reason to put you in something. You're acting again, and you're actually back doing The Secret Garden. Yeah. But it seems to me that, like, between your writing and your self-knowledge and your – that you're back at it with, like, a certain level of control. I wondered if you could talk about your experience returning to it. What – what made you want to and what does it feel like to sort of like re-enter a space like the Secret Garden that probably holds a lot of complexity for you? It's, yeah, it is very complex. What made me want to is a combination of like, you know, a, a deep emotional connection with the show and also yeah. just like, I need to work. Yeah. <laughs> I need to feed my kid. But when they announced last year that they were doing this concert version at Lincoln Center, my my immediate first response, I called my agent and I said, I need to be in this. I do still struggle with this idea of like, oh, it's embarrassing. Like, is this the only show that Daisy can be in? But I know that that's just like garbagey, trolly. Like, yeah. those are the internet trolls that live in my head. Yeah. Um, we and, all have them. Yeah. And I don't need to listen to them because the fact of the matter is, is it's – one of the most beautiful shows, I think. And I have had people over the years come up to me and say, like, the cast recording made such a difference in my life. It was, like, the summer that I came out and my family didn't want to talk to me and the album was the only thing that got me through. Or, like, I've just... People have said those things to me over the years and so I know that it's an important and a beautiful show. And I I really try to see it as as that I'm very fortunate to get to have this experience because nobody gets to have this experience of, first of all, of getting to be back in a show all these years later. And revisit it as a new character and in a new way. Yeah, and also specifically the fact that now I'm playing not the mother but this maternal figure to yeah. this little girl who's hurt and broken and that I get to, like, go back and and heal my inner child and be like, it's okay, you're going to get through this. <laughs> I just got chills down my whole body imagining you hugging tiny Daisy. I know. it's in, Nobody gets to do this. And it is extremely restorative. And it really is this opportunity for me to be like, to to sort of close that chapter of my life and, and send it on its way, you know? So beautiful. And... Uh, and also to and to remind myself of that lesson because I the the what Martha says to Mary is this is a really hard time just hold on and you're going to get through it and so the fact that I had that said to me when my mom was dying is invaluable and now as a mom too it's like I get to I get to remember that and say that to my child like this sucks cuz life is hard but like just keep Just ride it out and you're going to be okay. There's a lot of Daisy Egan in our future, thank the Lord. Make sure to check out her appearance on season six of Girls, read up on her blog, Broadway Baby, and keep an eye out for her upcoming book. Lori Simmons has been an artist for 61 years, my mother for 30, and a filmmaker for nearly 10. I'll leave it to you to decide how long she's been alive then. Anyway, to transition from art photographer to feature-length narrative film writer, director, and actor is by no means an easy feat, especially when so many people want to ship women in their 60s out on icebergs. But it's an achievement my mom conquered with grace and just a little bit of what she horrifyingly calls mommy juice. Something that's interesting to me about the movie, and there's a lot of things, I love it, I'm biased, and I love it, is the way it depicts not just the process of aging, but the process of aging as a female artist. And I wondered if you could sort of talk about 
almost like the politics of aging as a woman in the art world and how you imbued the movie with that. Oftentimes, women of a certain age, women over 50 in movies, are depicted as being very childlike, only being interested in the fact that they're aging, not having aspirations. If they're single and they connect with a man, hook up with a man, they seemingly have forgot how to have sex. They're always shrieking. They shriek? Oh, that's so awful. They're always like, ah! Like someone's walking in and they're like, nah! And <laughs> that was good. You've got your part cut out for you when you're 55. There are so few accurate depictions of women over 50. Women over 60, forget it. They almost feel like they're either on the brink of death or dementia or just mired in the whole idea of the end is near. And frankly, the women that I know are still going strong. What was it like to do your first sex scene at age 66? Well, I called for the mommy juice, <laughs> which was code for tequila, which I never drank before in my life. So I, I, I just got this feeling like this is not something you're supposed to say on a podcast. But No, of course you're supposed to say it. I just but, imagined if I was on Girls in every sex scene, I asked, bring me the mommy juice. I, can't, I did I the just stone really, cold sober girl. I really did not know what to do. And if you see the scene, very little happens. But, um, or as but far it's as weird. I, like, like, you've been married for 34 years. And as far as I know, been sticking to kissing one person. Mm -hmm. So it's just a weird, I mean, like... I find it weird, and I do it all the time. Well, I I do remember even you know even in the midst of the mommy juice calling you and asking you how the hell I was supposed to do that. Yeah, you and I had like a very pretty detailed conversation about the difference between screen kissing and life kissing, which is a conversation that I feel like very few moms and daughters get to share. Where I was like, you can move your mouth without using your tongue, and you were like, got it, head it out there. <laughs> And it came out awesome. You think? Yes, of course. It looks amazing and it looks real. And I have to say, it's a really cool thing to be like 30 and be like, my mom just did her first sex scene and it looked great. Can I say something which you said to me at the end of the podcast last time and I want to say to you this time? Mm -hmm. I'm really proud of you. Holy. I love what you made and you did it and you did it with so much style and energy and you inspired people and... It was everyone who worked with you on the movie who's told me, like, talks about you, like, in this such a reverential way. And so you got to tell me how proud you were of me. And now I get to tell you how proud I am of you. Thank you, Lena. But I got to say, I learned so much of it from you. I was kind of a cunt sometimes when you called me. When Lena? You were what? <laughs> this, is a, this is not an, this is not, this is a free range podcast. It's just not one of my favorite words. I love you. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Lori Simmons' new movie is called My Art. You can follow her on Instagram at Lori Simmons for some delightful content like her artwork and aggressively fun-looking vacation photos that she's clearly posting to hurt her enemies, a.k.a. me. Thank you so much for listening to this season of Women of the Hour. I just wanted to take a moment to express our gratitude that you've come on this journey with us. You've reminded us with your tweets and Instagrams and inspired segment ideas just how incredible and powerful groups of engaged women really are. It's a lesson we need to be reminded of again and again for the next four years and beyond. I love each and every woman who has chosen to share her voice with us, and I love my incredible and raucous staff of podcast elves. And I especially love you, dear listener, for tuning in every week and tolerating my foibles and quibbles and notably irksome voice. Also, you can look past your own backyard at the experiences of women you may not know or understand, but for whom you have radical love and empathy. If you need me over the next few months, I'll be the one sitting on the edge of the fountain, holding a rose, crying until you tell me I'm yours. Till soon, Monomores. This podcast was produced by Pineapple Street Media and Lenny Letter. Those are two media companies who aren't in competition. They're holding hands like sisters, like we all should. It was produced by Jenna Weiss-Berman, Liz Watson, Emily Becker, Barry Finkel, and Gabrielle Lewis. Love you, ladies. Special thanks to Henry Malofsky, Matt Slinsky, Ben Cooley, Jessica Gross, and John Cryer? 
I've had so much more than a good time. It's meant so much more to me. But I don't know if I'll ever fit inside who you want me to be. And I won't play the game. I'm not a. Thanks, as always, to Mailchimp for sponsoring the show. Our music is by Andrew Dost, who's tall, slim, and engaging. I wrote a poem once called, I Felt My Body Go Today. It goes like this. I felt my body go today. Or was it yesterday? I don't know. It's just not the same. You're a woman now, or so they say, to ease the strain of change. You see it now in younger years. Maybe it's in the air. I think it's up there. Your brain is where decay begins. It allows the breakdown of skin and then the fissure in itself, which causes you such pain. But when it's done, you'll comment on how it used to be, and those with few years will smile, knowing it never was. And then you'll look at the tight flesh of youth and salivate as if a hunger had begun. But your tastes have changed along with that. So you understand less, accept more, and all the time wonder why. And then the answer drops, just like your body. Change. Accept the change. Much love, Jamie. Thanks again to Audible for sponsoring our show and feeding my Shirley Jackson obsession. If you listen to the books and have a big thought, tweet at me using the hashtag Women of the Hour. Now enjoy your 30-day free trial at audible.com slash Lena. Lena.